0: Thank you, Daniel. Did you hit record? Thank you so much. We're in the book of Romans chapter one. I think I've been saying that for a while now, haven't I and I for the next um for the next couple of weeks, I may do a little bit of bouncing around uh either in this book or another book on Sunday mornings and uh, but, but we're we're just jumping into the the beginning of the meet here in this particular uh, verse or this particular book and probably we'll be looking at pretty much the same passage next week as well as, and as I looked at it and gave it some thought I realized that there's probably more here than we can cover on a Sunday morning and unless you guys want to be here till noon or one um no, we won't stay till noon or one. i got to look. I, well, I won't look at the person who looked. I know. They know I was kidding, though, didn't they? So, I try to end on time, whatever that is. But I think this is really such a rich passage that we want to um, take our time with it and uh, to really be able to understand it. Romans chapter 1, verse... 16 and 17, I'm going to read it to you this morning in the Holman Christian Standard, or the Christian Standard Bible. A little different than your King James, not a whole lot. Um, But I, I have it in front of me, so I'm going to go ahead and read it to you. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, because it is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it, that is, in the gospel... God's righteousness is revealed from faith to faith. Just as it is written, the righteous, or in other translations, you would have the just, will live by faith. Lord, we'd ask that you would speak to our hearts this morning as we look at your word. And that we would be instructed and taught by you. Lord, give us understanding. Give us attentiveness to your spirit. And that we might hear these wonderful words of life that you have for each of us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. We're getting into some pretty heavy theological um, content here. And um, so this is where the heavy lifting of Romans begins. And verse 16 and verse 17 of chapter 1 is basically where Paul launches his argument in verses 18, chapter one, verse 18, and he will continue that argument all the way into chapter three, right around verses uh, 20 to 21, even 22, where where he will he will show that that all of humanity has a sin problem. All of humanity has a sin problem, and and uh, there there's. There's no difference, and he, he'll address three different groups of people. First, he'll, in chapter 1, he'll address basically those who are the heathens, those who are, are people who are uh, really against God and, and make no bones about it. You ever met people like that? I've met people like that. They're interesting people. Um, I had a guy tell me then one time that he said, if I, if I stand before God and he doesn't let me into heaven... Can I be blunt? Can I say what he said? To hell with him. And I was waiting for lightning to strike. I thought, for as intelligent you as you are, you are a stupid person. That you would have such little fear of God Almighty. This is a guy who grew up in the church. This is a guy who believed in God. And he decided that he was going to retool God in his own way. He lived a bit of a heathen life. He didn't. I've met a lot worse. I worked in construction, so you can imagine the folks I used to work around. But Paul here in chapter 1 will take on those who are the heathens, those, uh, those who live basically wicked lifestyles, those whose, whose lives are, are against God and they make no bones about it. Later on, what he will do, and, and he will start talking about the moralist, the moralist, the people who will say, well, I live a good life have a good heart we'll, we'll address that later by the way. I have a good heart. I live a good life. God will let me in there's no problem with that, and they trust in their sense of morality now of course, morality, particularly to the unchristian, is on a scale, and it 's on a curve right because it's a totally different standard most of the time than, than that which God Uh, has declared in his word i even see this at times but well even more and more and i don't i don't i don't know what to make of this but at times with christians who they've they've revised or professing christians i may just say it that way all right i'll let you work that one out any way you want they revise the scripture to say what they really want it to say See, the problem is never in what the written word says the problem is always in our ability to interpret it correctly that's always the issue. The moralist, who, because of their good works, do not need what we're going to talk about in a second, the righteousness of God. And then there's the religionist. The religionist, the one who, who uh, and, and we, we see this in the Gospels with the Pharisees. They're a great example of that. Because they follow the rules, the rule keepers. Some of you are rule keepers, I think it's, anyway, well, quiet mike anyway some of your rule keepers and, and and but we can get wrapped up in this idea of religiosity well i came to church i went once a week i even went when i didn't want to come right we've all done that haven't we all right and because of their religiosity they think that they should obtain righteousness but the thing is is what paul is going to mine out in these, these, this next passage that we are embarking upon is that based on our own ability, we all fall short of the righteousness of God. Every single one of us. Eventually, in this book, he will provide the solution because it's the righteousness of God that is found in Jesus Christ our Lord that makes all the difference in the world. But he goes on to tell us in verse 16, he is not ashamed. He's not ashamed of the gospel. Uh, actually, I, I, uh, in the Christian standard, it doesn't. In, in the manuscripts that they use to translate from the Greek to the English, they do not have the gospel of Christ in that manuscript. They just have the gospel. Uh, the New, America, or the uh, New King James has the gospel of Christ. So I threw it in there um, because, just for clarity. Um, but he says he's not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Uh, what's, what's interesting about this, um, when he goes on to say he's not ashamed of the gospel, because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek, which we're not even going to get that far today. Although we will jump ahead of that a little bit and look a little bit at verse 17, where it talks about, for in it God's righteousness is revealed from faith to faith. Just it is written, "The righteous will live by faith," which is a quote from Habakkuk chapter two verse four, which we'll probably look at next week. What's interesting about what Paul declares here is that in Romans chapter three, um, that, that's for you, by the way. Um, in Romans chapter three, verse 22, it says, "Even the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus to all and on all who believe." So it talks about the righteousness of God, which we're going to talk about again this morning. In in chapter 3, he talks about the righteousness of God, which is true faith in Jesus Christ. So he's already, as I bring this to your attention, he already tells us in chapter 3 that if you want the righteousness of God, then you obtain it through faith in Jesus Christ. We are saved by grace, Paul tells us in the book of Ephesians chapter 2. We are saved by grace through faith. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Now, I'm really glad for that for a number of reasons. Number one, I couldn't do enough good works. Not about you, but I couldn't do enough good works. I know that about myself. I also know enough about myself that would, I'm going to be honest with you and say I would be so tired to listen to everybody bragging about their good works and how they thought they were getting close to God because of their good works. It would drive me crazy. The ground at the cross is level. In other words, we all come to God the same way. And it is through the finished work of Jesus Christ that he did for each and every one for whosoever would believe upon him would not perish but have everlasting life. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of that gospel. And what's interesting to me because... He's not ashamed because one, it's the power of God and, and, and two, it reveals the righteousness of God, which this whole idea of the righteousness of God, which is I, what I want to begin to talk about this morning, is a huge, huge subject. He's not ashamed of the gospel because in it has been revealed the righteousness of God. Is also, he, he's, now think of who he's writing to. He's writing to Rome. What's Rome? Rome's basically the, 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 the imperial capital, but it's also a very pagan city. So they would hear the gospel, and as they did in Athens, in the book of Acts, once they heard about the resurrection, they thought it was pretty much silly and simple and inaccurate although there were a few that were interested in more uh, of what paul had to say paul has already had that experience in athens under his belt the clash of culture the clash between the culture today and and the culture that god establishes through his people as he instructs them and calls them to live through his word it is a clash of cultures I ran into some of it with some people in seminary. A clash of cultures. You really believe in a six-day creation? You really believe in a worldwide flood? And... and. And I, I remember I had a discussion with someone recently, and I was talking to them about Deuteronomy 18, that if a prophet, uh, if someone claims to be a prophet, they prophesy, and that prophecy does not come true, you're not to fear that person. They are not God's prophet. They have not spoken for God. Matter of fact, God, God tells them elsewhere that you take them out and stone them. And I was having a discussion, this was recently actually with a person, and he tries to go to textual criticism to try to shut me down. I've had enough courses in Bible and textual criticism that I know how to fight back. And he was trying to negate that which Deuteronomy plainly declares because he didn't see it applied all throughout the biblical Old Testament history. And so my first big question for him was what about maybe God's grace? And perhaps God was being much more gracious, gracious than you and I would anticipate. Much more gracious than you and I would probably even be to ourselves. And that kind of, he didn't know what else really to do with that. You see, part of the problem with the gospel of Christ is it is based on God's grace. And people feel like they've got to contribute something. They've got to contribute something to the occasion. Or equation and and the thing is that we are saved we are we are born again we are given entrance into the kingdom of God and therefore have the hope of heaven only because of what Jesus did only because of what he did not anything that we do at all on our account in the gospel, the, the righteousness of God is revealed. The, um, this is the fourth time, and I don't know if you've, if you've looked at this. This is the fourth time that Paul has mentioned the gospel in chapter 1. Obviously, it, it's, it's, it's something that's, that's very important here. He mentions it 13 times in the book of Romans. And just for fun, I looked it up over 100 times in the New Testament, the word gospel is used. It literally means the good news. It literally means the good news and and there 's different ways to define the gospel. I was even tempted to take you to First Corinthians chapter fifteen that I think outlines the gospel. It talks about Jesus Christ coming in the flesh and dying on the cross and raising from the dead, which secured our salvation but but even in that the the gospel really is is that for it, Way back in eternity past, God chose, or God chose, to create for Himself a people who would respond to His love. God chose to create for Himself a people who would respond to His love. I I. I I, I love that. I, I, I didn't make that up, by the way. I read it. I don't, I, I could, I'd cite it for you, but I, can't, I didn't put that in my notes. But someone wrote that. I thought, that's perfect. It's like one of my professors used to, he said it all week. And, and I never got tired of hearing it. This is years ago when I, when I was going to school in Indiana. And um, he said, the Bible is really about God gathering for himself a family. God gathering himself for a family. Which means that some of you are the strange uncle. I don't know. Anyway, uh, they never say strange aunt, do they? You ever hear that term? I don't. So is the strange uncle. I, I think there's probably a reason for that. But uh, I won't go down that rabbit trail. Just an observation. God is creating a people for himself who would respond to his love. And, and And because we are children of Adam, because we have been tainted with this original sin of Adam, we need deliverance, we need a savior, we need someone to come in and to do for us something that we could not and cannot do for ourselves you see that that's really the 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 whole crux of the gospel is that God comes in and he intervenes he comes in the flesh Jesus Christ God in the flesh coming on earth and and living a sinless life and I I just think about the nagging disciples and that would have drove me crazy you know if you've read the gospels they they argued who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom I would have turned around and said none of you you know, boy, you had a lot of patience. I think the only thing that would have made it worse if I would have thrown myself in that mix, right? Maybe you would feel that way about you as well. You know what I'm saying. You understand what I'm saying. And then there was Mike. All right. Yeah, that would be, that would be problematic. Not you, Mike. This, anyway, Well, maybe you. I don't know. God is creating for himself a people who would respond to his love. Boy, I hope that sticks with you next week or this week. Because it's a love that's pure and it's perfect. It's a love that's long-suffering. It's a love that goes to any length. To call his people to him. It's a love that's illustrated by the father of the prodigal son who stood waiting for his son to come home. When his son had spent his fortune and woke up one day sleeping next to whom? Or what? The pigs. Jewish boys don't do that kind of stuff, right? Right? It's that type of a love that God has, that long suffering that and I love in the Old Testament the word mercy is translated from the Hebrew word chesed, hesed, H E S E D, if you want to spell it in English. Make sure you italicize it. I'm kidding. Anyway. Well you're supposed to with anyway. That long suffering can't turn it away, can't turn it off, cannot run away from it, cannot drown it out, can't escape is love Now think about you well just for a moment think about your you at your worst in your life Hopefully it wasn't last week all right And think that you at your worst and God pursues you anyway See, that's the gospel, because this idea that the gospel involves us being justified. That is, that we are set in a right relationship with God. That because of what Jesus has done, I can stand before God clean and forgiven. And I have an advocate with the Father who is Christ Jesus. Thank God for that. I've been justified. We've been justified. We're also, the gospel also includes our sanctification. That is our growing in Christ to to our growth in holiness to make us more like Jesus. Ultimately, when we leave this body and leave this world, we will realize our glorification where we will be have that ultimate transformation into the likeness of Jesus Christ. We will know as we are known. We will completely assume that divine nature that, that Peter talks about in his first epistle. Not that we ever become equal with God. Don't under, don't misunderstand that. But Peter says that we are, we, are, we will be given this divine nature as we have this union with God. Of course, I'm content for him to continue to run the universe. And I'm content for him to continue to be Lord. God help us if somebody else is. And you see, that's really the ultimate of sin. And Augustine used the phrase of sin is actually our turning inward in in ourselves or toward ourselves. Is that that we, we, we try to take the reins. And we try to take control. Now, should you should you plan? Well, I think so. Should you have goals? I think they're nice. Should you have a sense of purpose? Definitely. The gospel has a sense of purpose. Your justification, your sanctification, ultimately your glorification. There's definitely a purpose involved in that. But as I live my life, I yield to the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ in my plans, in my purposes, in my goals. And so, sometimes trying to find the will of God becomes a great big adventure. That in talking to many of you, and in experiencing these things on my own, I describe them as an adventure, but in reality, they can be really frustrating. God, why am I dealing with this? God, why is this person this way? And and I've shared this with you many times. I know you all know this, but I'll just complete the thought. It's because God is more... Uh, um, more concerned about our eternal development than our present comfort. He is more concerned about our eternal development than our present comfort. Now, I wish I could have both. Sometimes I get it. But as as I've shared with people, I've shared with some of you. I used to work in a painting shop, and there was a big sign that we had in our shop, and it said, quality, service, price, pick two, right? Because it just seems to be that that is how life is, and that nagging deficiency, that nagging incompleteness is a means by which God uses those longings and our desires in our hearts to draw us closer to him. Because he is the fulfillment of those longings. He is the fulfillment of those desires. I better get going because I'm not even into verse 17 yet. It is the power of God to, well, it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. See, I don't believe that God ever negates our free will. I know that some of you may take a little issue with that. I think God can be very persuasive, so it feels like our free will is being impinged upon, but I think that God never violates our free will. Because, again, he has chosen to create for himself a people who would respond to his love. So that salvation is to those who believe. It is the power of God to salvation. It is the power of God to transform. Your arguments, as good as they may be in and of themselves, do not convert anyone. So yes, there is an element of God's sovereignty. And it is God's Spirit who bears witness with our spirit that these things are true. And it is the Spirit of God who draws us into that relationship where we finally say yes to Jesus. Both when we become a Christian and as we continue to grow as a Christian. But ultimately, you decide. I believe. And particularly in the aspect of God's sanctifying work in our lives, as I've shared with you before, what do you want to ride in heaven? Do you want to ride a tricycle? Do you want to ride a a Harley-Davidson? Or the vehicle of your choice, we'll just say. All right? What do you want to ride in heaven? What what type of eternity do you want to have? You know, I, I, and I've told you this before, I'm just trying to get out of the pastor section, okay? I'll be happy for that. But ultimately, my sanctification, which is the will of God for my life, according to Scripture, is the will of God for your life, according to Scripture, our sanctification is ultimately really dependent upon how much we allow of God to transform us, and that 's hard because I want the temporal comfort along with the eternal development because that that's that's my that 's my path we all go to the path of least resistance don 't we For goodness sake, why wouldn't we want to? And if you don't, then maybe we're gonna talk later, but anyway. God doesn't force himself, I don't believe, upon our free will. Now he can be incredibly persuasive. Left to my own devices, I would not be standing in front of you this morning. And probably most of you, if not all of you, would not be sitting here this morning. We'd be somewhere else doing something else. But God has a way of drawing and convincing and, 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 and calling us to Himself. Without taking a lot of time to unpack it, because I do want to get into verse 17. It says to the Jew first and also then to the Greek. This has been interpreted in a lot of different ways. As I pointed out to you last week. That God is interested in calling the world to himself. And yes, the message of the gospel was which he promised, verse 2 of chapter 1, by the way, before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, what Holy Scriptures are, is, what Holy Scriptures, even though it's plural, it's still singular in the verb, what Holy Scriptures is Paul talking about? In verse 2 of chapter 1. He's talking about the Old Testament. Also known as the Hebrew Scriptures. So the message of the gospel. Yes did come to the Jews first. But it was intended. To be proclaimed. Throughout the world. And that God so loved. The world. That he gave his only begotten son. Gentiles were never an afterthought. As some people believe and teach. And so, the order that's given here is mainly, I believe, a, a, an illustration of what took place historically. Yes, the Jews were given the message first. And they were actually to go out into the world and share the good news to the world. And they couldn't even handle it or be good stewards of it themselves. That's why they ended up in Babylon. And God, in his mercy, allowed them to return. But, of course, he had to allow them to return because the Savior of the world is also one who is the Messiah of Israel. And just so that some of you don't get too terribly uncomfortable, and we will look at it at some point later, Romans 11, yes, the Jews will be grafted back in. But the calling and the heart of God, the invitation from God has always been to whosoever will. John three sixteen. So we have the righteousness of God that we, he talks about in verse 17. For in it, in, in what? What's the it? It is the gospel. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. I love that saying. I don't have time to talk about from faith to faith this morning. We'll look at it probably next week or even on Wednesday night. But what is the righteousness of God? This term righteousness is used 36 times in the book of Romans. It's used 315 times in the New King James Bible. It's a very important word. It talks about the, the righteousness of God which is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. The word righteousness in verse 17. The word just in verse 17. Are a variation of the same word, one is a noun, the other is an adjective. This word diokosune in the Greek can be translated righteousness. It can also be translated just or justice it's an interchangeable word from the Greek into the English. Does that make sense? So when we really, re, when we excuse me, when we read for in the gospel. The righteousness of God could also read in the gospel the justice of God or the just acts of God and that the righteous shall live by faith or the just shall live by faith, Um, which is Habakkuk 2.4 is just an incredible pivotal verse in the Old Testament that that we want to spend a little time with as well. But what is the righteousness of God? i got a few minutes. What is the righteousness of God? There's a couple of different views. I kind of like them all. First of all, one view is it's an attribute of God. The righteousness of God is one of his attributes. One of the things about God is that he is righteous. Is that true? You better believe it's true. Okay? and And that view is taken from these different statements in verse 16 for instance uh, where it talks about the power of god that's another attribute is it not verse 18 the wrath of god is that another is that yet another attribute yes it is attributes that are defined by god's actions all right it's also considered to be another view is that the righteousness of God is God's activity whereby he declares to be righteous those who turn to him by faith. Because the just shall live by faith. Notice that they don't just start off by faith, make a profession of faith, and then they're done with that. But that becomes a part of who they are. It becomes engrafted in them. It's, so it is the activity, it is the view that the activity whereby God declares uh, those who turn to him by faith as righteous. We'll, we'll look at this in Romans chapter 3, verses 25 through 26, which is a, a, an incredibly strong and uh, a theological statement about God's righteousness. But we're not going to do that this morning. So you see how we're still kind of introductory. Remember when I talked about this where a a good paper is you tell them what you're going to tell them, then you tell them, and then you tell them what you told them. Right, Bill? I checked with you on this last time. Just want to make sure you haven't changed your mind. All right? He is still telling them in this letter what he is going to tell them in the letter. All right? Does that make sense? All right, so we're just getting little previews here. And, and so I don't want to go full bore or we'll be in chapter one for a year and a half, for goodness sake. But, uh, and then what do we do? Anyway, um, God's activities by declaring those who trust in him as righteous. That's the righteousness of God. The first one, of course, was it is an attribute of God. Thirdly, and this is my favorite, although I do think these other two are in fact true. The righteousness of God refers to our the human's righteous status as a result of God's justifying activity. The human's righteous status as a result of God's justifying activity. Remember, I said you can't earn righteousness. I talked about this earlier. That some people try the the uh, the heathen doesn't care. The moralist tries. Like anything, and then the religious person tries quite a bit as well i 'm staying all the ad, staying away from the adjectives, but you get the idea but the righteousness of God is God uh, refers to what God has done for us and to us because of what He has done. Not only he died on the cross for us, but because we believe in him, we obtain the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. In a sense, his righteousness becomes ours. Now, there's this word, uh, particularly you see this more in the older King James, that it is imputed to us. Now, who uses the word imputed? Who said imputed last week? Thank you. Yeah, imputed in the Old Testament, imparted. But it, it really refers to this idea of, of, um, of depositing money into your checking account. So if anybody would like to impute or impart to Clay, he'll give you his account number, and then you can put money in it for him. How's that? But um, that, will that work? All right. Um, but the idea is that God deposited his righteousness into our bank account. Does that make sense? So the righteousness of God is revealed by faith to faith. Many times, Paul, in his letters, he talks about this particular view about how uh, in Romans 5, Romans 10, Philippians 3, 1 Corinthians 1, 2 Corinthians 5. If you want those, see me later. I'm running out of time. But I'm just trying to make the point that Paul really undergirds this idea that we obtain the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And because we have trusted in him, because we believe in him, we have exercised our faith in receiving him as Lord and as Savior, that becomes our status. So we are kingdom dwellers and kingdom members. My first allegiance is to the kingdom of God. I believe For Christians, our first allegiance needs to be to the kingdom of God and its righteousness, and all these things will be added unto us. I love how Jesus combines seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness. What is he talking about? He's talking about since you have become righteous in the righteousness of Christ, now seek first his kingdom And it's righteousness. He's talking about growth. He's talking about sanctification. He's talking about how you live your life. (sighs) Which at times that tells me I have to sit quiet. I have to be still. I have to not respond. I have to not react. And I have to steady myself and quiet my heart so that I can hear the spirit of God speak into the situation. Which is not a lot of fun. A lot of the time. You guys know that don't you? So God bestows his righteousness upon us. We see this also in Isaiah 46. And Isaiah 51.5. And he declares. Us to be righteous. Because we have turned to him. By faith. We are saved by grace. Through faith. It. Which I believe is salvation. Is a gift of God. Not of works. Lest any man should boast. See Paul uses this. This word righteousness too. As God's pardoning action. Remember what Trump did a couple of weeks ago. Pardon all his buddies. Right. Look at the ceiling, Mike. Okay, bad example. Okay, you understand what pardoning is, all right? Cats out of the bag. I can't chase it back in, all right? God pardoned us, and in some respects, I kind that that softens me a little bit, and hopefully, it should. That that God pardoned us because we were unrighteous or you could define that word not righteous but because we were willing to trust in him the righteousness of God that is revealed from faith to faith which we will start probably next week he's pardoned us you didn't deserve it I don't deserve it. You will go out probably this week, and some of you will prove that you don't deserve it. But the gospel is about God creating a people who will respond to his love. That's what he's called you into. That's deep. That is as we sung this morning. Deep calling out to deep. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your great faithfulness. For your love and for your mercies. That are new every morning. So, Lord, show yourself strong on our behalf. We ask, too, particularly in praying for some today, Lord, declare their righteousness because of your righteousness. In their hearts and in their minds and in the hearts and minds of others, we pray. Lord, we thank you for this wonderful book and this wonderful apostle who wrote it. And ask, Lord, that you would just help us to really glean and understand more about you. Not that we, we, we become simply better theologians, but that we become more in love with Jesus. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. God bless you guys.
1: Yeah.